Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. In 2011, the Food and Drug Administration issued a warning stating that citalopram at doses above 40 milligrams has been associated with increased risk of corrected QT interval prolongation, torsades de pointe, and sudden death. Patients older than age 60 are not recommended to receive doses exceeding 20 milligrams daily. In this retrospective cohort study, the authors assessed the impact of the FDA warning on prescribing patterns of citalopram in hospitalized patients 60 years of age and older. Subjects were admitted to the study institution from October 24, 2010 to August 24, 2011, and from November 24, 2011 to September 24, 2012. The time periods of data collection reflect a 10-month interval before and after the warning. Records were examined for the presence of baseline risk factors for QT interval prolongation and torsades de pointe. The FDA warning was not associated with an observable change in prescribing patterns of citalopram. A total of 98.8% of patients had at least one risk factor for QT interval prolongation. No significant difference in the total number of risk factors was seen between groups. No differences were seen in risk factors pre- and post-warning, except a higher percentage had left ventricular hypertrophy or history of syncope prior to the warning. More subjects were prescribed concomitant proarrhythmic medications after the FDA warning was issued. Similar percentages of each group were receiving daily dosages greater than 20 milligrams of citalopram. The issuance of an FDA warning did not produce observable changes in prescribing patterns of citalopram. Patients prescribed citalopram had multiple risk factors for QT interval prolongation and torsades de pointe. Modifiable risk factors and optimal dosing may be targets of intervention aimed at promoting safer use of citalopram. Clozapine is a well-known antipsychotic drug with limited extrapyramidal side effects. The plasma concentration has wide intra-individual and inter-individual variation with a given dose, and there are many factors that may affect the metabolism. In this study of 113 patients receiving clozapine, the authors investigated the relative importance of clinical factors, such as age, smoking, weight, and sex on plasma levels of clozapine. They also studied the effect of genetic variants of drug metabolizing enzymes on plasma clozapine concentration. Since weight gain and increased fasting glucose have been reported to have a dose-response relation to plasma concentration of clozapine, they also investigated the relation between the clinical factors, genetic variants, and fasting glucose levels and waist circumference. 
There was a wide variation in clozapine plasma concentration, with approximately one-third of patients within the target range. Smokers had significantly lower plasma clozapine concentrations than non-smokers. One common variant of the cytochrome P450-1A2 gene was associated with lower plasma clozapine concentrations. This genetic variant was also associated with a lower risk of increased fasting glucose. A variant of the multidrug resistance gene was also associated with lower plasma clozapine concentrations. Even though the most important known factors affecting clozapine concentrations were included in this study, they only to a very limited extent explained the observed variance in clozapine concentration. This result, together with a wide variation in plasma clozapine concentration with a given dose, led the authors to the conclusion that therapeutic drug monitoring is recommended whenever clozapine is used. This study was supported by a grant from Prima Child and Adult Psychiatry. Examination of genetic information alongside clinical presentations can help clinicians and patients gain a better understanding of treatment outcomes and side effect risks. This report by Ray and colleagues describes the cases of two young adult men with depressive symptoms who experienced severe and disruptive motor disturbances while taking serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Both patients had a long history of medication failures and complex presentations. Genetic testing was utilized to guide effective treatment plans and to provide insight into previous medication failures. Most notably, testing in these patients revealed variations in the serotonin transporter protein and in cytochrome P450, 2D6, and 2C19 enzymes. These cases demonstrate the utility of genetic testing in clinical practice to help identify effective treatment plans in psychiatric patients. A common tolerability issue associated with antidepressant treatment of major depressive disorder is the emergence of adverse events when therapy is discontinued. The purpose of this post-hoc analysis was to evaluate the incidence and timing of taper post-therapy emergent adverse events following discontinuation of long-term treatment of desvenlafaxine. This was a phase four randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study conducted at 38 research centers within the United States between March 2010 and February 2011. Adult outpatients with major depressive disorder who completed 24 weeks of open-label treatment with desvenlafaxine 50 milligrams per day were randomly assigned to one of three groups for the double-blind taper phase. The no-discontinuation group received desvenlafaxine 50 milligrams per day for four weeks. The taper group received desvenlafaxine 25 milligrams per day for one week, followed by a placebo for three weeks. And the abrupt discontinuation group received placebo for four weeks. The incidence of any taper post-therapy emergent adverse event was lower for taper 
versus abrupt discontinuation at week one, similar at week two, and lower for taper versus abrupt discontinuation at weeks three and four. Clinical practice guidelines suggest that for many antidepressant drugs, tapering the dose at the end of treatment can reduce the incidence of discontinuation symptoms. Clinicians can educate patients about the potential for symptoms when discontinuing desvenlafaxine treatment and consider using a taper regimen when possible to reduce the overall number of adverse events. This study was sponsored by Pfizer. After the earthquakes that occurred in Lorca, Spain on May 11, 2011, the Regional Mental Health Management employed two clinical psychologists for six months to provide care to people referred by primary care physicians. The objective was to address the expected increased demand for treatment of mental disorders, notably PTSD and adjustment disorders. Referred individuals were evaluated and treated according to a clinical protocol designed ad hoc from June 12, 2011 to November 30, 2011. The protocol provided a stepped intervention guided by clinical and psychometric assessment using normalization for those with no psychiatric diagnosis, brief group treatment for mild to moderate PTSD or adjustment disorders, individual treatment for more severe PTSD, and referral to the local mental health center for other mental health disorders. Standard adult and child scales to assess post-traumatic depression and anxiety symptoms and resilience were used at initial assessment to guide treatment allocation and repeated to assess outcome status. Psychologists also provided a clinical assessment of symptoms resolution at the end of the study. Rates of symptom resolution and improvements on all scales, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and resilience, demonstrated clinically and statistically significant improvement in all treatment groups. Dropout was low. Medications were prescribed frequently to adults. However, no child received medication as a result of the earthquakes. No case of mental disorder related to the earthquakes was referred to the local mental health center during the six months of psychologist intervention. The structured intervention resulted in a high resolution of cases and low dropout, allowing treatment of a larger number of people with optimal frequency and devoting more time to the most severe cases and less to those moderately or mildly affected. Psychogenic purpura, also known as Gardner-Diamond syndrome, is a rare condition characterized by spontaneous development of painful edematous skin lesions progressing to ecchymosis over the next 24 hours. Severe stress and emotional trauma always precede the skin lesions. The condition is most commonly seen in women, but isolated cases have been reported in adolescents and in males. Psychodermatologic evaluation and dermatology and psychiatry liaison have been successful in the treatment of these patients. This article provides an overview of psychogenic purpura and presents the case of a 15-year-old girl. 
Visit primarycarecompanion.com to read this interesting report. Research demands in academic programs continue to increase for both trainees and faculty. For most training programs, the development of research endeavors among trainees is an ongoing challenge. However, several strategies can improve research productivity. In this article, Sansone and colleagues review various considerations when attempting to undertake research activities within an internal medicine residency training program. Research strategies include assessing the institutional resources and support for such endeavors at the outset, developing projects that are simple, focused, and time-limited in duration, avoiding grant support when possible, maintaining a well-defined and lean research team, considering projects that are most likely to be exempt from institutional review board review, and strategizing publication type and journal submissions. Given that research entails multiple components and distinct skills, the overall program goal should be to make research an educationally understandable process for trainees. The authors note that research can be a rewarding activity when nurtured in a facilitating educational environment. Early pregnancy loss is a shocking and traumatic event for women and their families. Nearly 20% of women who experience a miscarriage become symptomatic for depression and anxiety. In a majority of those affected, symptoms persist for one to three years, impacting quality of life and subsequent pregnancies. This article explores the depression and anxiety that women often experience following early pregnancy loss and provides recommendations for primary care providers. Women at highest risk for psychiatric morbidity following miscarriage include those who are younger, Hispanic, or of lower socioeconomic status, and those with loss of a planned pregnancy, a history of infertility or prior miscarriages, and poor social support or coping skills. Clinicians should screen women frequently for depressive symptoms beginning at six weeks following a miscarriage and may facilitate the assessment by utilizing the Patient Health Questionnaire 2. Those experiencing clinically significant symptoms beyond two months after miscarriage should undergo formal mental health evaluation and treatment. Incomplete resolution of depressive symptoms with treatment of major depressive disorder is associated with early relapse and recurrence of depressive episodes. Risk of relapse is significantly reduced by continuation of antidepressant therapy after response to acute treatment. In this article by McIntyre and colleagues, relapse rates and predictors of relapse were evaluated in two randomized placebo-controlled trials of desvenlafaxine for major depressive disorder. In study one, week eight responders to open-label desvenlafaxine 50 milligrams per day entered a 12-week open-label stability phase. Patients with a continuing stable response at week 20 were randomly assigned to six-month double-blind treatment with desvenlafaxine 50 mg per day or placebo. In study 2, week 12 responders to open-label desvenlafaxine 
200 or 400 milligrams per day, were randomly assigned to six-month double-blind treatment with desphenlafaxine 200 or 400 milligrams per day or placebo. For this post hoc analysis, relapse was assessed using the study's per-protocol definitions, and because those differed between the studies, a common definition based on the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale total score only. Overall relapse rates for all definitions were significantly lower for desphenlafaxine versus placebo for both studies. In study one, rates were significantly lower for desphenlafaxine versus placebo at month two and month three using the protocol definition. In study two, relapse rates were significantly lower for desphenlafaxine versus placebo at months one, two, and three for both definitions. Hazard ratios were similar at months one, two, and three, and overall for both studies. The authors conclude that continued antidepressant therapy following response to acute phase treatment reduces the probability of relapse in patients with major depressive disorder. A treatment period that allows for both a response to treatment and stabilization of that response is associated with lower rates of relapse. This analysis was sponsored by Pfizer. Have you ever had a patient with active medical problems coupled with a problematic psychiatric disorder? Have you ever wondered whose role it was to assess psychiatric symptoms and how much of a medical workup should be initiated before requesting a psychiatric consultation? If you have, then the article from this issue's Rounds in the General Hospitals section should prove useful for evaluating psychiatric problems that arise in the context of ongoing medical problems. Read this article and others from our Rounds in the General Hospital section at primarycarecompanion.com. As publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders, it gives me great pleasure to announce the launch of a state-of-the-art online job platform to serve our readers. The CNS job market is now open for business at cnsjobmarket.com. Our goal is to serve both job candidates who seek career choices within the CNS arena and employers who seek qualified healthcare professionals. Just as you rely on the primary care companion for CNS disorders for trusted content, now you can rely on us for career opportunities and recruitment needs. The CNS job market employs the latest innovative technology to make searching for the right job and the right candidate easier. All services such as resume posting, advanced searching, Social media integration and job alerts are free to job seekers. And for employers and recruiters, we offer a range of multimedia advertising opportunities, outreach options, and candidate matching at affordable pricing. Visit us at cnsjobmarket.com where skilled healthcare professionals and outstanding opportunities meet. We are excited to offer a digital flip page edition 
of this issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This turn-page format will give you the feel of holding a print journal in your hands while allowing you to seamlessly navigate from article to article. We hope you will take a look at our new digital journal as we think you will like it. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings and the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, as well as many timely case reports, a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.